Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is the um, tenth class, I believe, uh, in our structured study of the Eightfold Path. Uh, so we're getting to the conclusion of this study. This particular sutta, um, very short sutta, uh, describes the qualities that are developed through this well-focused uh, and limiting Eightfold Path. And this is from the uh, Melinda Pana, the, uh, the 18th book in the Kadakanukaya. The Kadakanukaya is a, a, a section in the Pali Canon uh, that, in, in the Sutta Pitaka, that um, has very short suttas that would be otherwise difficult to classify in the other books uh, and under those different classifications. So they're, they're kind of um, random in one sense, but but um, focused in another sense. This is from the Malindapana, which is a very short section in the Kudakanakaya that relates almost entirely to King Melinda and, and uh, the Dhamma that evolved around King Melinda, but not entirely. Um, here, King Melinda questions one of the senior monks of the Sangha, Nagasena. King Melinda says, Venerable, Venerable Nagasena, what is the distinguishing characteristics of attention and wisdom? Uh, and so you'll notice there's a, there's a, um, a qualitative difference between attention and uh, mindfulness and wisdom and concentration. Attention can be seen in this little sutta more as focus, and focus is the... Uh, um, Focus rests in concentration, and it's informed by what we're holding in mind, or mindfulness, that very specific refined mindfulness that the Buddha teaches. So, what is the distinguishing characteristic of attention and wisdom? Nagasena answers, examination of the Dhamma is, is the distinguishing characteristic of attention, meaning what we focus on is the Dhamma. Rooted in, and we use our concentration developed in jhana meditation and we find mindfulness to keep us focused. It's the distinguishing characteristic, characteristic of attention and severing is the distinguishing characteristic of wisdom. So the, through, the, through understanding what refined mindfulness is, we develop the wisdom to know what to hold in mind but as importantly, what to recognize and abandon, what is rooted in greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. That's the distinguishing characteristic that we're hoping to develop. Um, excuse me. Along with that comes the, um, the understanding that the wise disciple Everybody's sleeping in today. The wise disciple knows the importance of, of limiting themselves. And again, this is so contrary to the way human beings are almost um, programmed to live their life. That human life, there's even a saying, human life is a banquet, don't leave the table empty. Where the Dhamma would say, human life is a banquet, leave something for other people. It limits us. It's 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 it, it's a vehicle for ceasing grasping after constant eye making and constantly establishing myself in a permanent way in an impermanent environment and in a um, a notable way when notoriety is not the point. In fact, it's just the opposite of notoriety, isn't it? The the establishment of the cessation of eye making. The king then says, "Well, how is examination?" And severing, the and severing the defining characteristic of attention and wisdom. Nagasena says, and he uses a, a really beautiful metaphor, how do barley reapers harvest barley? King Melinda says, well, they take a sheaf of barley in one hand and cut the sheaf with a sickle in their other. Nagasena then says, in the same way that a barley reaper 
takes a sheaf in, in one hand and with the other hand a sickle and cuts the barley, so does a Dhamma practitioner develop concentration and refine mindfulness so as to take hold of the mind. And with attention, sever clinging to the defilements with wise intention. Right intention or wise intention. The intention to recognize and abandon craving and clinging rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. And how does that manifest? It's most obvious when we're mindful of right speech and right action and right livelihood because that's where they will be most obvious. These, these characteristics of wrong attention, what we're holding in mind, what we're trying to develop. And a, a lack of wisdom, meaning a lack of knowledge, a lack of true understanding. Remember, the Buddha doesn't teach the Dhamma as Four Noble Truths is developed so as to eliminate stress and suffering. Because again, that would negate the First Noble Truth, wouldn't it? The Dhamma, the Buddha teaches us through the Dhamma to understand suffering. And it's such an important point. <clears throat> we talked a lot about this. David gave a, a good um, talk on this aspect on Tuesday's class, but also last Saturday, the important to recognize this, this <coughs> excuse me, quality, <coughs> quality of the Dhamma. Excuse me. So as to take hold of the mind with attention and then sever clinging to the defilements with wise intention. It is in this way that examination and severing are the distinguishing characteristics of attention and wisdom. King Melinda then answers, you are wise, Venerable Nagasena. That's the end of this short little sutta. So again, there is, it's a sutta with a lot in it when we understand the Dhamma, but it's also very simple and direct. I, know, I think there's an, an argument either last Saturday or Thursday's class, I can't remember, about, oh, I remember who brought it up, that it's not simple, and I need to stop saying that. But it is simple. But our minds are very, very complicated. They're clingy. You know, they're sticky to all the kinds of things that we've used to, to manufacture a fabricated self in the world. And so the mind doesn't want to let go of that. And that seems like a very complicated process. And even that type of um, self-reference is encouraged often. That we need to examine all these things that bother. Where do they come from? You know, provided a, a lifelong analysis of every feeling that we've ever developed, where the four, found, the four, four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha teaches us, recognize feelings as impermanent. Don't take them personal. Recognize they're arising and they're passing away and let them go. Do the same thing with your thoughts. And then we can apply those to these thought constructs that we make about ourselves and who I am in the world. And in this way, in a very gentle and direct way, I can whittle away at that, this, this fabrication of myself in the world until I'm finally purified of these defilements of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, of constant eye-making. And what does that look like? Well, I'm going to add this to the end of this study because it needs it. It looks like what the Buddha taught us in the Dattavabhanga Sutta. What every human being is and all that every human being can be a six-property person, the five elements, and that sixth element or the sixth property of consciousness. And so look at ourselves. What, what makes us, what makes up a human being? And what do we get out of this life? What can we hope to achieve? And it's important to look at what the, what the Buddha is teaching. His birth is stressful. He's teaching us the first noble truth. As a consequence of having a human life, there will be stress. Get over the need to not have any stress in your life. And along the way, from birth to death, there's going to be stressors. There's going to be things that happen. But when we can understand that, the inherent stressors in, in human life, and not take those things personally, through attention and wisdom, we can live a calm and peaceful life. And in that way, each and every moment is fulfilling because we're living that moment not what we're getting out of that moment, not what we can take off the banquet table of life, but what we can leave on that table of life. That's today's talk, too. Um, we'll go online first. Hello, Brian. Hello, John. Uh, thank you for this. Yeah, I, it's fascinating to me how, how metaphor 
begets metaphor and like in my head i'm just seeing the grim reaper with the sickle yeah and, and the the analogy still holds right like just yeah. like cleaving off the things that are no longer necessary like the clinging and the the defilement so it's it was interesting to watch this unfold in my mind where i've got one metaphor you're saying and i've got another metaphor explaining the metaphor so it's <laughs> It's just crazy, and it, it all still works. So, thank you. Yeah, it, it, thank you for pointing that out because I mean, it, it, that's the image I get in my mind when I when I read this too. It's the, the Grim Reaper, which is an important thing to understand. You know, that that Grim Reaper is waiting for every one of us. None of us know when that sickle's gonna fall, do we? So we better make this this moment meaningful, and not for any other reason except really just that one. Why do I want to wait till it's all over for meaning right here, right now? Hello, Anthony. Can't hear you, Anthony. I was muted. I'm sorry. There you are. <laughs> um, so I, I was just saying, um, I don't, I was kind of like reflecting back on the teachings and I was wondering, did the Buddha ever consider stress and suffering um, like, did he consider them merely experiences to be understood or were there ever any kind of teachings where the Buddha looked at the necessary and beneficial nature of stress and suffering as a means to develop growth and resilience? Wow, what a great question. I think, the, I, I think well, I, I shouldn't say it that way. The, the, the Buddha taught that understanding stress includes that component. In fact, he didn't. He never said that stress is evil or bad in this in in any any kind of sense. He simply said it's part of human life, but it's the part of human life that distracts us from human life. So again, he whether he he didn't teach that there was benefit to to stress, but that the, that simply understanding stress was the benefit of it. That it's a consequence of human life. And again, look at the chaos in the world today. A lot of it is is around how can we eliminate stress? And sometimes stress gets gets so great that we, we can no longer ignore it. But are we learning? It goes right back to the Loka Sutta where the Buddha says over and over again, yet people wander through their lives, meaning throughout history, lives have come and gone. And yet we fail to understand this one thing, the nature of stress. So... The, the benefit in stress is to understand it and uh, because it's part of our life. You know, it's the same thing as understanding our own minds. So really a, a great question. Um, Anthony, I, a, a question comes to my mind because of uh, the, 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 the significant change you've made from, um, I, don't, I, I, won't, I don't know how much of your history I, you'd be comfortable me telling so I won't, but just to say that you went from one significant profession to another. And so my question is, are you finding, and I think I know the answer. I mean, it's one of the, a lawyer never asked the question unless they know the answer. So I'm playing your game. Uh, That's think, proper cross-examination. Are, yeah, are you finding a lot of meaning in your new chosen profession? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I've even talk people off the bridge you oh. know like i definitely find meaning yeah yeah so, and it's not um it's not harder than practicing law but it's just as draining <laughs> I imagine. yeah after What's i that? after i recovered from from my i stopped drinking but people still argue are you recovered when you i consider myself recovered when i stopped drinking and like many people in early recovery i figured well i'm i'm going to be a great therapist because I understand it uh, and I started doing uh, some of the preliminary trainings uh, and I realized this is way too tough for me so I give you a lot of credit for what you're doing and uh, oh thank you yeah. I, I'm enjoying it you know and um, I, I um, the adjustments kind of hard because I thought that it was going to be so much easier and I realized that it's you know by the end of the day you're drained like I, you know, like four people is a sweet spot. Five people I can handle. Six is probably my max. 
I did eight one day and I was just completely burnt out. But you're it's, fighting great. Uh, it's training because you have to you have to listen. Yeah. You have to like really listen. But I'm enjoying it. I'm glad you joined us today, my friend. Got a little update on you. So uh I'll see Thank you. you. I'll see you again soon. Good morning, Kevin. Okay. Morning, John. Good morning, everybody. So, um, as I alluded to before, I'm selling my house, and it has all the elements of greed, aversion, and deluded <laughs> thinking. And I, I'm not only a householder, but a house clinger. You know, and this clinging has to be severed. And then under the delusion that once this is all settled, then everything is going to be great. Because no, because there will be more dukkha to follow after this. Yeah, life will continue. But also, like, even looking at the... Uh, the discussion from a couple of weeks ago the sutta with the path i think i you know i took the right fork but right now i'm somewhere in that woods and in the swamp and <laughs> i have to thank you for bringing me back to the path this morning because i woke up in the middle of the night with all kinds of anxiety and it's sort of like okay let's, let's get perspective on this yeah. so thank you <laughs> thank you for taking refuge this morning i'll, I'll see you soon hello jeff Hi, John. Had a little technical difficulty there first thing this morning. Um, yeah, uh, thinking about what Anthony uh, was was uh, uh, referring to, it, it, it seems to me as though you've got to have, we perceive things by comparing them, I believe. So you, you wouldn't know peace and calm unless you knew some suffering and and uh, it, it would be like not you wouldn't be able to know the light of day unless you also knew the opposite mm-hmm. darkness there would be nothing to compare it and understand it to so There'd in a way no the two are in, inexplicably one thing um, yeah I guess I, I on the other hand you know it could be liking like like him to the the, uh, the old saw about hitting yourself on a your, on a thumb with a hammer because it feels so good when you stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's suffering. So is like I, that I don't. Too. I don't. I, I guess I wouldn't recommend that you you enjoy suffering so that you can enjoy it when it stops. But we don't really have a choice. You know, you have to accept both if you're alive. Yeah, and you have to understand it with wisdom. Some people reconcile suffering by feeling like they deserve it because they're just such horrible people, you know. And at at some level, we all think that when when so called bad things happen to us, we uh, rooted in a in a, a modern you know a pop interpretation of a popular interpretation of karma. You know, everybody sees karma like the like Charlie Brown in the football. Everybody remember that, you know, when he when they. Lucy took the football away and he landed on his behind and that was Charlie Brown's karma. Well, you know, that's not that's not karma at all, but we, we tend to think that. And so again, understanding that this stuff happens to everyone and it's not, uh, I can't remember who it was. It was a really good class on Thursday because a lot of stuff came up, but the, the fairness that life isn't fair. The first noble truth says life isn't fair, so get over that. You know, stop comparing yourself because there'll always be somebody who's got it better than you and always somebody that you have it worse. Why do you want to bounce around and stick yourself in that in that chaotic view of the world? It's just what's occurring. So we understand it. Thank you, Jeff. Good morning, Mary. Ah, who did somebody just popped off? Good morning, John. Um, I had technical difficulties this morning, so I Jeez, so I opted not to interrupt meditation. I joined after, so well, thank you. Well, you um, thank you. Um, my work laptop some, sometimes doesn't like Zoom, so sorry about that. Um, okay. But thank you, thank you for the teaching. Um, you know, it's so important to understand that in every moment when we're um, in those uh, stressful spots, that we have choices to make, right? And having right intention means also having right view that you can see things clearly in order to make. You know, am I going left or am I going right? And left might be toward liberation, but right is toward 
uh, more suffering or clinging to your suffering or thinking that, you know, like, cause you can think that suffering is a part of life because it is, but then you can sit in it and say, well, I'm supposed to feel this way, or I'm supposed to, uh, sit in this and, um, you know, not realizing that you don't have to, you don't have to deal with stress that way, that there's another way. And it has to do with stepping back and getting in right view um, and seeing your way, you know, kind of one foot in front of the other. And I'm, I'm thinking this morning as you were talking, um, because my 25 year old is, uh, I don't know, going through a little bit of a life crisis, right. And trying to use some of this to influence her to go easy on herself that she's only 25 and all things will work out and it'll be good, not for some, you know, sort of fairy tale reason, but because everything will work out as it, as it will and keep putting one foot in front of the other. So I'll be seeing her later today. So I'll be sure to talk about this. Thank you, John. Thank you, Mary. When I was 25 years old, uh, there was no way that this would have, um, I would say this wouldn't make any sense to me. It probably would have, but I wouldn't have accepted it because I was just too intent on eye making on this. You know, when you're younger, that's really right. when you're trying to establish right. yourself in the world. And you, and it, it's hard to not, you know, be engaged in eye making. And, uh, you know, I was going to be the, the, the biggest this and the biggest that when I was 25 years old, 25 years old. And I was really just, I was the, biggest behind in the world at the time right? <laughs> with my crazy ideas but you know. but that it, 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 that's that's all part of the maturation process too. that's why I, I say they describe awakening as full human maturity because right. it's, it's what it is I realize it's not so important that I become notable in the world what's more important is that I be present for whatever notoriety I have <laughs> Yeah. Becky, good morning. Thank you, Mary. Good Deborah, morning, John. To get on Thank you for the teaching. Um, well, I just uh, feel like everything through this suit has been sort of reestablished. Like uh, Mary said, and the idea of of being of having enough concentration to stay in right view is is paramount for me. Mm, yeah. um, sometimes it's it's the when you say clinging and craving and you use a lot of examples about uh, wanting another piece of cake, wanting a new car, wanting to be. <clears throat> center field for the Yankees. Um, Still might make it. You know, going, going through, I, I don't have, I never had a lot of those big kinds of clinging and cravings. And so when I go through my day, it's like I just feel like I should be happy all the time. And that's what I cling and crave to. And if a feeling comes over me that is like a cloud, then I, I, then I bump up against that. Yep. And that's my stress. Yeah. And you think you're doing something wrong when you're not happy all the time. I don't. I don't. I. Mm. I think that okay. I have to. I have to change this right this minute. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But if you're in right view, that doesn't happen. Yeah. And it is just so peaceful if you can get there and stay there even sometimes you can stay there for a day especially after Dhamma class when everything's been brought back and you're you know you're you're back sort of on equilibrium so thank you for another centering class Thank you for good teacher. For, thank you for for being a part of it. I should write a book called "The Truth of Happiness." Shouldn't yeah. I? <laughs> <laughs> good morning, Adam. Good morning, John. Um, thank you for me as well. Uh, and an observation and a question. Um, the observation is that the, this sutta um, clarified for me was meant by right intention, 
more so than any than anything that I come across before, um, as a way of sort of managing a filter for all the defilements. Um, the question I had was about some of the commentary in the in the reading. Um, and in a couple of places, it talked about sort of the misapplication of the Dhamma to impermanent things and something like that. And I wasn't quite clear on that, what that was. It sounds like a, a pothole we need to avoid. Um, but I'm wondering how we recognize it uh, when it comes up. If we're, what's an example of misapplying the Dhamma to impermanent phenomena? Uh, it, it really can happen in an in infinite number of ways. Uh, in, the, in the context of a Dhamma practice, it would be um, attaching an impermanent object, event, viewer, and idea as something that would make me awakened. You know that, okay. uh, and it could be anything. Again, mm-hmm. it, it was infinite within modern Buddhism. And so on. Yeah, it, it could be. I mean, you know, I, when I I took my vows in a, a certain Tibetan lineage, it was mostly because I loved it. It was. The, the, the temples were the most elaborate and they had the biggest and the greatest hats and they had those big horns. I always wanted to get one of those big... <laughs> but I mean, really, it was, yeah. there was part of that. So that was, it was the trappings of that particular lineage. Okay. More so than what, what they could, what I could learn there that, uh, it, that I was attached to. So it really can be anything like that. But it also could be within the Dhamma that I got to be the best jhana meditator. You know, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jhana for you know 27 hours straight or so. All of that it doesn't make you. It doesn't develop understanding. It's just an attachment to an impermanent object, event, viewer, an idea. So, and I should point out there is a lot of, uh, for the shortness, the conciseness of this particular sutta. There's a lot of uh, background on the on the web page itself. So, but, yeah, it was a very good question. Thank, Thank you. John, that's good morning, Scott. Good morning, John. Good morning, all. Um, my, my takeaway from this week really was about right intention. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And I think a lot of people felt that way also. Um, it's something that my feeling is right intention can come up every moment or every breath, and you can make that choice yes. mm-hmm. a thousand times a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not natural, feels to me, and it's not easy to make that choice once or a thousand times. Um, I'm not as wise as Anthony, so I'm still practicing law full-time. <laughs> Did you hear that, Anthony? <laughs> yeah. <what? laughs> and, you know, I, I own this bookstore and run their event program, and then I have a gig at the art yard running their concert program. So it's a full day of those moments when I am generally very consumed by all of that. And it's only occasionally that I think, oh, yeah, do I have right intention at this moment? Uh, am I able to carry that in my mind at the same time as carrying whether I'm going to take a deposition or not? Um, so this that theme uh, carried through to me from this week's reading. Yeah, again, that's the, the Dhamma developing and to see it that way. And I think we all see that right intention here. Uh, and it, it relates to uh, how to stay disentangled in the world when you're in it. You know, the, 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 the Buddha taught, when he referred to his life before he left, he left the palace grounds and to develop the Dhamma, he called that a confining place. And he referred to it that way throughout the rest of his life. That that type of life is a confining type of life. But he didn't say don't live it. And he said, he didn't never said that you can't develop the Dhamma unless you live that life. In fact, he taught many people, Anathapandika always comes to mind, uh, that maintained a, 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 a life in the world and yet still developed a Dhamma. But it's much more difficult, I think, you know, because we're in it moment by moment. And you're right to see it that way. The Dhamma practice then is a practice of bringing that right intention in this moment. And when you start feeling that craving for or clinging to views rooted in ignorance, and we, we, we develop that sensitivity, don't we, that when we would notice tension in our body, and that's the tension we're coming up against our own ideas. We recognize it, take a breath, and as teaches us in this little sutta, we let it go. And then it comes up again in the next moment or the next phone call, the, or the, next, the, the next duty. Here I am. How do I resolve it? By taking yourself out of it, and yet somehow we still have to be in it. You know? <laughs> 
That's the, that's the great mystery, isn't it? But there's no mystery. Becky. Um, yeah, and it's when, when, you, when you do that, when, when, you, when you can hold in mind your right intention at the same time as you're functioning in the world, you do get such profound feedback, I think, because you realize that you've just negotiated whatever it is. And you haven't contributed to the chaos. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that, when that happens, you know it. You, you, you absolutely know it. You know so who it. are you negotiating that, that's, with? That's the empathico right there. That's You're yeah. negotiating with yourself. Yeah, yeah. It's you're always yourself. We're always coming up always against yourself. ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Even if it's obviously something out in the world, or an obvious something, it's mm-hmm. probably a better way of saying mm-hmm. it. It's still ourselves. It's our relation to whatever it is, whether, you know, the war in Ukraine or, you know, the the neighbor next door who's hollering at their kid. We're always coming up against ourselves and that it it seems like, well, that person needs to stop that because they're disturbing. The disturbance is always in my mind and it's always up to me to make a practical decision about what can I actually do about it. Sometimes it might be, well, I got to move because the neighbor's never going to shut up. Again, it's just a silly example. Or maybe, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to raise my blood sugar, so I'll leave the chocolate cake. I never had to think about that before. Now I, I can only eat half a cake. Of <laughs> <laughs> so those damn doctors. Yeah. They just want to spoil your fun. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's, it's, we can laugh at these things, but these are the things that I used to do and we all do to keep us distracted and, uh, and even reward ourselves, you know, that, uh, because we're so wonderful, or we, or maybe because we're not as awful as we think we are, sometimes mm-hmm. we just get caught up in this this constant self-referential uh, way of living life that is just full of tension and full of stress. Where we can recognize, I'm doing this to myself. You know, nobody's doing it to me. I mean, I, I I felt my whole life that. Everything was happening to me, and yet at the same time, I was making all these bad things happen to me at the same time. And how do you get out of that? You can't. You can, I mean, there's no, there's no escape. You, you could try maybe a lifetime of therapy, but that's not an escape, is it? Or you can understand, this is what I'm doing to myself in this moment. In this moment. Mm-hmm. That's where right mm-hmm. intention, and as a sangha, we develop that. It's, it's really, uh, it, it, it's... It's not surprising. It's pleasing to see us all realizing this is what we're talking about, right? Intention. What is my intention in this moment? Is it for further eye-making or is it my intention to awaken in this moment? And that's the possibility that the Dhamma brings us in each and every moment. And that's what really what we should be mindful of. In this moment, am I moving or am I developing further ignorance am I, or am I moving towards an awakened quality of mind? What do you think, Laura? Everyone's been very helpful. That that's um, very helpful. What Becky was just saying, because I realized that word negotiating. What you were both talking about, how how much I do that, you know, negotiate or try to justify why I'm doing something, or oh, let me just take this shortcut yeah. or um, neglect this responsibility. And especially what Mary and Scott were saying too. Thank you both for reminding um, me that, you know, right intention and making the right choices, this comes up every single time I take a breath and just, you know, right intention is, I guess, simply, you know, and making the right choice really comes back down to what you always say, just being present as life occurs. And then I've experienced that, you know, increase in, heightened concentration yep. and then I'm able in that frame of mind to make the right choice or the, the right action or the better decision yeah. so it's helpful yeah thank you Lauren thank you for, for describing Dhamma practice because mm-hmm. that's just what it is um, next Saturday is our uh, I think it's going to be an annual but this will be the first the I first annual right. uh, Sangha Cross River Meditation <laughs> Center Sangha Delaware River Cleanup and I hope you all attend. Laura and Lauren have uh, went to great efforts to organize it. Uh, I'm getting a bullhorn so I can make sure nobody misses any litter. 
so please, uh, please join us. A- after class next Saturday, we're going to go out for breakfast all together. Yeah, uh, I reserved a hundred seats down at Love and Oven, <laughs> uh, and we're going to we're going to have the cleanest section of the Delaware That's River. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Lord. Thank you, John. Hello, Rom. Good morning. Um, thank you for this, this beautiful little suitor. Um, what uh, what Scott was saying about the the complication in his life and the, the, the overwhelming part of it, uh, part of right intent is is to let some of that stuff uh, fall away because you realize that you're you're only doing it for a for a reason that's just eye making. Yeah. Um, so it can be. Sure. Yeah, it can be. For me, part of practicing the Dharma is is um, asking from time to time: Do I need to? Yeah. You know, do I need to be um, uh, upset here? Um, do I need to? Uh, where, where's this this um, um, this need to be involved with something? You know, where does that come from? You know, yeah. Can I? You know, is that something that can fall away? It can be severed in, in this sense. Um, I found that over, overall the, the, the practice has, um, has simplified my life. Not that I'm doing less, but um, there's less a, emotional uh, involvement with it. So the, there, there's less effort in it, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but Ron, don't you think that that stepping back and saying, "Do I need to do this? Do mm-hmm. I need?" is part of right intention. Mm-hmm. For me, it, it's like I'll notice that I'm something is is stressing me. I'm upset. I have that, mm-hmm. and and then I'll be jumping right into how do I how do I manage this, mm-hmm. and then I'll just what's my intention here. Mm-hmm. Where is this coming from? What's my intention? Well, and then, need to manage it. then you just stop and you don't do anything. And you find out that nobody I, needed you yeah, for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's taking care of itself. It's taking yeah. care of itself and it's much easier. Oh my gosh. And, so yeah, and life goes on without you. Yes. That's a, that's a good thing to learn. You remind me when I, it is. When I was early in recovery, like three or four years in, this is back in 1983, four or five, in a way. Um, I got a bit of a reputation in the 12, I don't even know if it's true anymore. In the 12 step communities, there's these things called circuit speakers. It's a handful of people that get a reputation that go around and speak at big meetings. And I, I started getting a reputation like that. And so I became one of these guys that, that went around speaking at AA meetings. And so I became an expert on something that doesn't require an expert. <laughs> Giving up drinking is something that is the most sensible thing somebody like me can do. So to, for me to create a, uh, a persona about someone who is special because they did something that saves their lives got to the point where I realized how ridiculous this was. And it became all-consuming. I had a long calendar of these places where I was going to go and thinking about, you know, what just picturing myself in front of 150 people just getting them into recovery. It was just ridiculous. You know? And I, eventually, it took me a few years to stop. And it was always stressful. I was always busy uh, because everybody loved me. Um, and I almost drank over it. I almost went out. I've been sober over 40 years now. Uh, because of, cause I, had, I so lost my mind on what many people thought was an example of sobriety that I almost got drunk over it. Jeez. Because of how, how big you know, my my head wow. couldn't fit through the door anymore. But I learned the lesson, and uh, I, I I literally stopped doing it. You know, I still get calls, and I just refuse to to do that for other reasons. But um, and, and just to just to kind of put the fine point on that, my the the less I bring into my life, the better my life is. Mm-hmm. And I and I'm as busy as I want to be, you know, and I'm still fairly busy. But I also have a lot of quiet time in my life because I have a lot of quiet time between the ears. And it, it just seems to work out that way. Yeah. Right, David? Right. Dhamma te- thank you, Dhamma teacher. Mom. 
This is another sutta about what is and what isn't our practice. Yeah. And I've always thought that people often take a a flyer past right intention because yeah. the other factors are so much more interesting and sexy and you can yes. grasp onto right speech and action. And uh, you've heard each person kind of mention concentration and view. Yeah. And even the word intention can be a an issue because what we're talking about is right intention. Mm -hmm. Right intention yeah. meaning that what are you keeping in mind is the heartbeat of the Dhamma, yeah. the Four Noble Truths. And that's right intention. It's not deciding to do the right thing. It's mm -hmm. to that's right. have your life structured around the Four Noble Truths. It, yeah. That's right intention. And when you hear that comment about challenging the simplicity of the Dhamma, that's what you're flying by is right intention. Yeah. Because you're trying to shoehorn something else into that third noble truth. Yeah. So, thank you. Thank you for that. Right intention is the intention to recognize and abandon craving and clinging. The clinging that would have you cling to something else that you think is part of your practice. Let me bring and it in it goes here. to the, it's a, the entire Eightfold Path yep. and the limiting goals of that that structure. Yeah. So, thank you. Yeah, thank when you, I David. first joined, I, I thought right intention, oh, I thought it, all these terms were more than what, were, what David has just helpfully yeah. described, but it's the right intention is really just, yeah, Abandoning craving and clinging, and just staying present for life as my life as life occurs, and just yeah. taking a breath, and it's not something more than that. You know, yeah. wanting it to be something, you know, virtuous or. But obviously, this these things manifest in, you know, virtue and you know, high yeah. concentration. And yeah, as a natural consequence of consequence. of right practice rooted in right intention. I had a, a, a old, old friend of mine. I say that because it would be a needle to him if he heard it. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, I've known him now for well over 20 years. Um, and he insists that there is no such thing as intention in Buddhism. He mm -hmm. practices something else. But uh, mm -hmm. obviously, you, the, there is no Dhamma without the entire Eightfold Path, but certainly without right intention. Yeah. When, what is my intention? Is, is it for continued eye making, continued stress, or is it my intention to understand what it means to be a human being, right here and right now? Mm -hmm. yeah, I was told forever that that you can't do meditation with there, there shouldn't be any effort in, yeah. there shouldn't be any intent in. If yeah, if you, it, it, it works out pretty well if you don't want to go anywhere in your meditation. But. You, know, you cling to that idea. There's, there's nothing to it. Well, I, we might just a, a quick story. I want to get done before Scott has to leave for the first I time. Have one question also. Oh, well, let's have it. You don't, you don't need so, another story. I, I just want to make sure I get the lesson um, about simplifying your life and the, and the suggestions. I want to really dwell on those. Uh, I guess the question to ask ourselves is: Are all the things that fill our lives? filling them because they satisfy or are making or for some other reason. Mm. Obviously, i got a lot going on in my life. And if somebody asked me, are you doing this so you feel good about yourself? I would think, honestly say, no, I do these things because they feel wonderfully creative. Yeah. To build a business, to book concerts, to solve problems, legal mm. problems. Um, yeah, some things that... just need to be done. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, 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 the... Uh... That is an entirely. I, I, you could, you could infer something that wasn't meant here that you sh that nobody should be busy. The important thing is that you're you're mindful for each moment of your life and that each moment of your life be fulfilling. If that so happens to be what you're finding in your life, you got it. You know that that that's what it's that's living life. Um, there's no right picture. 
you know, the, the bright, the, the wise Dharma practitioner isn't monolithic. It's not just, it's not just some guy sitting in meditation for their whole life or even do, not doing much. Even, even Siddhartha Gautama got up off his cushion every day and walked into town for food, for clothing, etc. So uh, that, that's up, up to each individual. Um, I think for most Dharma practitioners, their lives, their lives get gently simpler but as a consequence of their Dhamma practice, they decide some things are just no longer important. But it sounds like the things that you're doing are important to you and probably important to other people, too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a, it's and, a good and thing. And his life is simpler because even with this full slate of activities, and as he, he described how each moment you're running into these situations where there's a choice to make, it's simpler because... Hopefully, with your practice, that's where the simplicity yes. comes in. Yeah, you don't the, have to just go put yourself in a corner of a forest and get simple. It's how you deal with that second arrow that yeah. is always present mm-hmm. that you're willing to, you know, put into put to work. And yeah. simplicity comes from your decision, right intention, to not engage with that maybe something in the past that you would totally jump into and argue about. Yeah. So, Scott, has your life gotten simpler since you started Dhamma practice? I'm not sure I can say that. I can dwell on that. But my comment after the the lesson today was that for me anyway, and maybe for most people, the day consists of kind of constant input and decision-making and um, and engagement, and that's the the push and pull of: Am I going to be mindful at this moment, or am I going to be lost in those things? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. That what we're always referring back to is the present quality of mind, and and so the the things that we're doing are not uh, they're not necessarily relevant to the quality of our mind. We can carry our quality of mind into any situation. Mm-hmm depending on what we're holding in mind and what's our intention. So out, 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 external activities could be something we look at or they could be something that are actually just nourishing. Mm-hmm. You know? So it has, it has nothing to do with, with how, how busy we are externally, but how busy are we here. And how much are we taking personally? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. yeah. You, can, you can do anything. You can do anything. If you're not, if you're not bumping up against it because you're taking little instances personally, then you're calm and peaceful and you're there. Yeah. You're present because you're not lost in your ego. Yeah. And so whatever, you can do anything with that, that mind, that mind. Yeah. Uh, if it's legit, and you should be able to, to I mean, bring that mind anywhere. Yes. A, a, a common, peaceful mind. That's the whole point of the Dhamma. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's... Um, most people that practice the Dhamma and actually develop it, their lives do get simpler, but it's always a reflection of their minds getting simpler. Yeah. You know? And, it, and it's not necessarily reflected on outside activities, you know? People like next Saturday, it. we're going to be busy all day with stuff mm-hmm. to do, <laughs> and it's a it's a good thing. Yeah, we're we're we developed the Dhamma. Wise Dhamma practitioners developed the Dhamma so that they can be deeply immersed in life, moment by moment, mm-hmm. without taking any of it personally. And that's remarkable, isn't it? You know, that's that's a full life when you can actually be present for what yeah. you're doing, not so much the things that we're doing. You know. Uh, it's it's best if the things that we're doing are so-called wholesome things. Like if you if you told me that eight hours a day is you're you're spending it, you know, at the they still have the rascaler there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That you I remember thing I used to go there when I was a kid, you know, forty some odd years ago. Oh. Um, I really used to come out. It was my my trip because no. I drive out here when I first got my license, and there was a bunch of little gin mills all up and down. Wow. And I, yeah, I yeah, that was not changed much. <laughs> what was that? Yeah, it hasn't changed much. Yeah, it hasn't changed much. One change. You don't see me bouncing off every other tree anymore. So. 
a, a great question, and you bring up an important point that again, it's not external stuff. You know, it's what what's going on in my mind right here and right now. Uh, is it calm and peaceful? And I would say in this room and online, it's pretty calm and peaceful. So. Uh, all right, we're going to finish with meta as we always do. Uh, please don't forget the next weekend. I, I said love and oven. I'll see you, Scott. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Um, <coughs> but I think we're going to go to the bridge probably. Oh, I don't see Ken and Lisa. Okay. The Buddha's words on metta. Nakarniya metta sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Thank you, John. Peace. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.